just, just a mention of it. it. It brings tension to the room, right? It brings um, just a heaviness be, because we've all been affected by it, right? As I said, um, and, and there's some disagreement around it. Like, you know, what, what does the church, what does Jesus actually say? Or, or what is what Jesus has said? What does it mean? And, and so, yeah, there's going to be some tension with it that comes. And, and so it, it is that very tension, though, the, the feeling that we all get just by acknowledging the, the topic that makes it so important for us to actually hear from God on it, right? Like, this is something that has such great implications on our life, and all of us can, can point to some impact personally or within our family. It, it, it's super important for us to come to the Scriptures and actually hear what does God say? What does God say? Because there's not consistency, uh, you know, within really even any one church, it's hard to find agreement on what the, the Bible says. But certainly when you spread that out throughout, um, you know, evangelical Christianity, there's a lot of different schools of thoughts on, on, what, on what exactly does God permit, allow, encourage, command, and all of that. And so that's our hope today is just to show you what, what Jesus, what, what, what God's word says about this topic, we will go a little bit beyond Matthew 5 to try to get that greater context, but, but we're going we're gonna to try to do that quickly and then come back to this because this context is, is always important to keep what you're reading in context, okay? Just a, just, a, just a principle when you're reading the scriptures to not just take any one verse, but to think about, okay, where is this located in the Bible and what's going on around it and what, what does that tell me about it? And, and, what, and, and if, you're, if you've been walking with us, you know we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. You might not know what that is. It's, one of the, it's, it's really the most famous sermon in history. Whether you knew it was called that or not, you have no doubt heard um, you know, tidbits of it thrown around right? Uh, we've looked at an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Or we've looked at, uh, you know, you've heard it said not to commit murder, but I tell you, you can't have anger in your heart and same with, with adultery. And so you've, you know, you've heard excerpts from this sermon, whether you knew it was from this sermon or not. And so we've just been walking through this. And what Jesus is doing in this sermon is so important for us to remember, especially around a topic so weighty and so impactful as divorce. And what he's doing, if you have been here with us and if you haven't, he's taken um, what the Old Testament has said and, and dealing with the confusion, distortion, and misapplication of God's law Right? So the culture has taken God's law and began to interpret it in their own ways and, and work it into things that they're more comfortable with. And Jesus is addressing that and saying, hey, whenever you take what God has commanded and you loosen it, broaden it, you know, minimize it, look for ways around it, you're missing the heart of the Father when he gave you that law in the first place. And so he's taking us back to the heart of God and saying, hey, when these commands were given, it actually encompassed all of this. Not just what we do, but actually what we want to do. Okay, if you're here and you're like, well, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. Here's the deal. Here's the good news of the gospel. Here's where this passage finds its context. Is Jesus has said, the kingdom is here. What does that mean? It means it's not just about upholding this law. Right? And what Jesus is kind of saying is, hey, when you read the law, when you see the Old Testament commands, what it actually should do is go, is, it should make you realize, oh, I can't, I can't live that. There's no way I can fulfill those things. And Jesus shows up and says, you're right, but I am the way. Jesus shows up and says, you're right, you can't, but I will, and I have, and now you can because I am the way. And, and so the good news about the gospel is that he says, hey, broken people who can never find full life because of our sin, come to me. Come to me. What he's saying when the kingdom is here, he's saying, hey, hope is here. He's saying life change is here. New hearts 
are here. Dead people are being raised. That's the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel means good news. And what it means is we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. So if you're here and you're like, man, I'm just coming to church. Hopefully they'll be able to help me get my life, you know, straightened out. And, you know, maybe they can help me, you know, just be better or whatever. Well, here's the deal. We really can't. But we could point you to the one who can that our primary job here is to point you to Jesus, is to sh- introduce you to Jesus. We're, if, we, if, all, if all you leave here is four or five points to a better marriage or how to avoid divorce, then, then I've failed you greatly. But if you leave here with a hope in Jesus Christ that's applied to your marriage, now we're getting somewhere, right? So that's the good news. That's what the, the context is wrapped in here, is he's saying, hey, come to me with your stuff. And we're not going to settle for status quo. We're not going to settle for what everybody else does. We're going to pursue transformation. We're going to pursue heart change. We're going to pursue reconciliation. And he's going to apply it to marriage. Okay, but before we get to that, we're going to deal with the last few verses that Chris read for us and and talk about oaths. And so uh, I'm not saying Jesus was wrong when he did it in the other order. It just makes more sense in my mind to do it this way. And I I want to move really quickly through the oath um, portion. And I don't want to just tack it on at the end. It'll feel weird. Okay, so we're going to flip it, and I think it'll actually make more sense to establish that really quickly and then let the the marriage portion be an extension of that. So go to verse 33 with me, if you would, and and it says this. Um, He's talking about oaths, and he says, hey, you've heard it said for those of old, you shall not swear falsely. Okay, so he's looking at that Old Testament law and their interpretation of it. But you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I'm here to tell you, don't, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven or for it's his throne or by earth, for it's his footstool, not by Jerusalem. That's the city of the king. Don't take an oath by your own head because you can't make one hair white or black. Some of you are like, but I can't. I, I just dyed my hair this week. Well, they didn't have that then, okay? So just, just roll with Jesus. He's making a point. Um, verse 37, he says, just simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that's evil. What's he saying? Well, there's a, there's a culture, there's a, there's a, uh, a tendency and a practice in their culture is, is to swear by different things. Now, it's a little bit hard for us to relate to, but I think it's, it's not that disconnected. So for them, they, they would make a promise and they would swear upon different stuff, right? So they might swear, hey, I, they might say, hey, I, 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 I swear by the moon that I will pay you this amount of money. Or I swear by my, uh, the title to my car that I will, I will do this thing. Right? Or, for, uh, you know, by, I'm on mama's grave, I promise. Right? Stuff like that. We, we, we have similar things. It's not as formal for us. But, but the idea is that, that when they would swear by God, when they would invoke God's name, then it was really serious, and they could be really expected to do it. So it was like this degrees of seriousness when you make these commitments. And Jesus is saying, stop it. Just let your yes be yes, and you know me. No. Now, what's behind that? Because you're like, okay, fine. Like, I'm not going to swear by the moon anyway. I've never done that. But What's behind that? Here's the deal. Here's, here's what's happening for them and what happens for us too. They are letting the influence of people lead and, and direct how they live and how they behave and whether or not they fulfill a commitment. Here's what I mean. They, they, are, they are letting who knows about it and what cost it'll be to me dictate whether or not they're going to f- uphold a command. Okay, so let, let me just put it this way. So uh, if I make a commitment and I just make it within myself, I say, you know what? New year, new me. I'm going to do diet and exercise, right? Not eating sweets anymore. Y'all know that's funny because I've got a problem, right? I'm not doing sweets anymore, and I'm going to hit the gym, and I'm going to be healthy, right? Now, if, if I just say that to me, and then I come in on Sunday morning, then Journey Church has once again put out that spread of donuts, 
right? I'm going to be tempted, aren't I? Man, I really like those glazed donuts. Y'all can have the jelly filled, but I want the plain ones, okay? I'm really tempted. But the inner dialogue going on in my head is, though, it's not that big a deal. I haven't told anybody, right? Nobody's going to know. I'll start next week, right? I mean, give me a donut, right? Give me two while I'm, while I'm down here. Arr, you know, anybody else like, well, I've already fell off the wagon. I might as well enjoy myself, right? But if I make a post, if I make a Facebook post or a public declaration up here in front of y'all and I tell you, hey, I'm going to be healthy this year and I'm not eating any more sweets and I'm going to go to the gym and then you come in and see me with glazed sugar on my face, you're going to be like, bro, bro, what happened, you know? Uh, there's a little bit more pressure, right? So who sees it? What's the cost to me that matters it, whether or not I'm going to do it? Okay, does that make sense? A couple weeks ago, I preached on anger and revenge. And one of the applications I said is, hey, you don't have to defend yourself whenever the fa- when the fast food drive through worker messes up your order. It was not an indictment on your character, and they don't need for you to rise up against them, right? Y'all remember that? I kid you not, I leave that day. And one of my daughters has a birthday party, and we got an extra kid in our very large van, and I go through and order for like eight or nine people at McDonald's. And guess what? They didn't get eight or nine orders correct, right? They messed it up. So I got to go in. And I'm thinking, okay, because I'm kind of raised with a tendency to lay into folks, right? And, I, and I, I've done a lot better with that. But I was thinking like, okay, I got I to gotta watch how I handle this, because I just told my whole church not to lay into people, right? I'm the pastor. Like, I can't, you know? And so there's that pressure. You see what I mean? Because I told you all to act this way. If I'm going to be your pastor, I got to act. Does that make sense? And so what they would do is they would swear by these different things. And, and whenever they brought God into it, it had this weight that was like, okay, now I really have to do that. Jesus says, hey, listen, you're my people. There should just be a consistency to who you are. People shouldn't have to wonder whether or not you're going to do what you said you would do. And besides that, he says, you're swearing by something in heaven, and you're thinking God's not involved? That's where he sits. Right? That's where he says. That's his, that's his throne. You're going to swear by something here on earth? That's his footstool. Right? By the city? By your own hair, your head? You don't have control over yourself, whether you live or die, age or not, get sick or not. Don't swear like you have some authority that's disconnected from God. He's saying whenever you make some kind of oath, you should be worried about you and the Lord, not you and other people. And when you're worried about you and the Lord, there will be a consistency about who you are here and who you are when you go home and who you are when you get up and go to work in the morning. You see what I'm saying? There will be a consistency and integrity about us as Christians. When we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. Simple enough. Jesus is saying stop. Stop worrying about the cost horizontally. Instead, worry about the cost vertically. Who are you when you're alone, when nobody's watching? That's what matters most. You deal with that, and you'll have consistency in these other things, right? Okay, so we have a connection right off the bat to marriage, don't we? Because where is there a more common and public promise made than a wedding ceremony, right? Guess what? I didn't invite y'all when I signed my mortgage a couple years ago, but I made a promise to first mid whatever, whatever bank um, to pay them back for the money that they loaned me to purchase the house that I now live in. But I didn't invite y'all to that ceremony, right? We just did it. But you know what? I did invite friends and family in my church whenever I got married almost 14 years ago. Why? Same for you. You don't invite everybody every time you make some kind of commitment or promise, right? You get a new cell, cell phone deal with AT&T. You sign some kind of contract. You don't, you don't Facebook live that so everybody can see that, right? But when you come, yeah, some of y'all do, I know. But, uh, <laughs> but when you come to, like when you do a wedding, right, we're gathered what? Before who? God and these witnesses. Why? Because this is a different level of promise, right? 
This is, this is, this is a promise that, that, that requires a public statement, a public um, acknowledgement. And if, and if you come to a formal wedding, right, if you have a, a traditional wedding, uh, not only is it we're gathered in front of God and these witnesses to join these two in holy matrimony, but it also says something like marriage is a gift of God, right, given to us by him. It's, it, it's instituted by him, regulated by his commands, and blessed by Jesus Christ himself. How many of y'all have heard something like that at a wedding? I know most of you have because I've said it, everyone I've done here that you've come to. So, so there's, what is that? That's an acknowledgement that, that marriage is God's thing. And when we're entering into that sort of covenant, that sort of oath with one another, we're doing it in a way that absolutely invokes the name of God, right? It's interesting. I heard one pastor talking about this. He said, and I didn't check, I didn't in fact check this so you can go ahead, but um, that's how my mind works. I didn't write it down, but here it comes. Um, but he, uh, he said that every society, every culture that they've ever stumbled upon and studied throughout history, no matter how tribal it was or how removed it was from civilization, there was one consistent thing, and that was that they all practiced some form of marriage. What does that tell us? That this is not some man-made thing that's antiquated and we need to get rid of. You see, our society's taken a chisel to it. Right? It doesn't matter. It can, be, it can be dissolved. It can be rearranged. It can be these kind of people instead of man and a woman. You know what I mean? Like, it, they're just diluting it over and over again. But no, it's not that. It's something that's been given by God to all people. And that's why Hebrews 14 says that it should be held in honor by all men. And now we're back to the donut story. Because is marriage held in honor by all men? No. Be- because when I make a public pronouncement that I'm not going to eat sweets, and then you walk in and catch me with glazed sugar on my face. There's a little pressure, but it's not that big a deal, right? Why? Because y'all get it. Y'all get it, right? Most of y'all understand the struggle with food. It's not that big a deal. We've all been there. You know, everybody except the real health freaks, they're going to eat some donuts, right? It's a donut for crying out loud. The Jim Gaffigan skit, somebody asking me, you want a donut? And you're like, oh, I'm not really hungry. He's like, what's that have to do with anything, right? It's just a donut. Like, Right, so most of us just can relate to that struggle. We're not going to judge anybody because we're all, we've accepted that not everybody, most people aren't going to live that healthily. Not, not everybody's going to actually eat all their food from Whole Foods or from the co-op or whatever, right? We're going we're gonna to indulge. You're going to see me at McDonald's drive-thru occasionally. It's just going to happen. Get used to it. Embrace it. Don't be shocked, right? And so there's that, there's that acceptance of it. Well, here's the deal. We enter into marriage. We're telling everybody, I'm committed to this person for the rest of my life. I don't do any, they can add their own vows if they want, but we are going to say something traditional that says, until death, do us part. That will be in any wedding that I do. Otherwise, you're not covenanting. You're not entering into it, right? But we stand there and we make this commitment to one another. I'm here with you till death do us part. And, and I will say in those weddings, hey, church, they just made that covenant to one another. Now, we are here as witnesses. We're going to make a covenant to them. Okay, and I'll say, hey, we are now committing, we heard this commitment. So when they come to us and they're struggling and it's hard and turns out he's put on a few pounds or turns out he never gets off the couch or turns out he drinks a little too much or turns out she talks to her mom way too much or she just talks too much, right? When they start fussing about one another to us, what's our commitment to them? We push them back together. We're committed. No, 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 you made a covenant with one another. I'm not letting you have a scapegoat. I'm not letting you get out easy. I'm going to push you back together. But is that what happens? No, culturally, it's, it's not held in honor among men, is it? Right, y'all know the stats. It's right around 50% of marriages end in divorce. First marriages, it's like 35 to 45-ish. 
But second and third marriages, that number goes up significantly. So average around 50%. So yeah, we grieve divorce. It's sad. It's not that big a deal to our society, is it? It's kind of a, well, you, tr- you tried. Right? So, so we have this, this, this cultural tension of like, hey, if you say you're going to do something, you need to do it. Jesus is saying, you're my people. You don't look for ways out. You, you just do what you said you would do. And, and yet Jesus is saying, okay, hey, there, there's clearly a cultural moment where they are being flippant about divorce. And Jesus is coming in and saying, listen, we need to get to the, the heart of things. I'm not just worried about what you do and the technicalities. I want to get to the heart of why do you do it. And so when we get to marriage, Jesus is talking right, right here in thir- verse 31. He just jumps in, and, and we're going to have to connect some dots to get the context, but what Jesus says right off the bat is, hey, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him giving, give her a certificate of divorce. Well, what's he talking about? He's referring to um, what, it's from Deuteronomy 24. God did say it, kind of. Okay? He says, give her a certificate of divorce, but it's not a command. It's not you know, it, it's not just this thing you should do. It's actually a concession. And so they've distorted it. And what they've done is, is they're looking for whatever ways they can to get out of this marriage, right? So they're doing this with a lot of these laws, right? Okay, God says not to murder. Okay, well, how, can, how far can I get or how close can I get to that line without, like, what do I have to do in order to not break the commandments? It's like my kids at dinner time, their only real purpose is to get to dessert. Anybody else? The only purpose of eating is to get dessert, we don't even usually have dessert, and yet my kids are asking that question. I'm like, what are you going to have? They're like, I don't know. There's some 14-day-old cookies in there that I want to have. I'm like, okay. I, I didn't know we had it, but how much do I have to eat? Did I eat enough for dessert? Well, you got to eat five more bites of broccoli. And then they, they, they put the smallest little bites of broccoli that they can in their mouth. Is that good? Can I have it now? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? That's the Pharisees with these laws. That's how they're operating with these things. Like, what is the minimum that I have to do to still be within bounds? And there's two schools of thought that's going on. Jesus is addressing a cultural moment, and there are differing. I told you earlier, we don't have consistency on what the Bible says. Well, they didn't either. There was two primary schools of thought um, for the Jewish people about divorce. One was from Rabbi Halil, and one was from Rabbi Shammai, or I don't know, I might be saying that one wrong. Shammai was the conservative. He interpreted um, the law from Deuteronomy 24 to be a, a literal, hey, only if there's a significant indecency, let's look at that let's law together, um, in, in Deuteronomy 24, <clears throat> um, it, it says that... Um, if you find an indecency in your wife, then you can give her a certificate of divorce and, and she may remarry. Uh, and then there's another guy who's going to be really liberal with that. Let's look at it just quickly. He says in, in verse uh, 1 of, of Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then <clears throat> she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some, he has found some indecency in her, <clears throat> and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and she goes and becomes another man's wife and, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, stay with me, I'll explain in a minute, then her former husband who sent her away the first time, her first husband, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination to the Lord and before the Lord and you shall not bring that kind of sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So when Jesus is asked to speak into this cultural dividing moment in Matthew 19, you could turn there with me if you want. I think we've got it on the screen, but um, this is going to be a a bit more of a detailed unpacking of this issue where they try to put Jesus in a corner and tell him to choose. They want him to choose sides. 
Because if he chooses the more conservative side, he's going to have a lot of people offended at him, right? Because he's basically going to be calling them adulterers. If he chooses the more liberal side, then they're going to be able to say, oh, he, you know, they're going to be able to write him off in that realm too. And so Jesus is, is confronted by these, uh, the Pharisees in verse 3 of, of, of Matthew 19, and they come up to him and, and test him, okay? And they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You hear the language there. Is, 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 it, is it lawful? Can, can we get divorced anytime we want? That's what he's saying. He answered, what? Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning made them what? Male and female. Okay, we're just going to take note right there. What Jesus does when, he asked, when they're asked this question, he says, well, don't you remember when it was all started? How did God make them? make a male and then like a roster of females for him to choose from? Or he gave him Eve, but then here's this backup. If you don't like her, you, you know what I mean? No, he's male and female. One woman, one man for a lifetime. That, that's how he made him. He says, therefore, he's quoting Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife. This is a, this is a covenant of becoming one flesh and the two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two. But one, one flesh. What God has joined together, don't let man separate. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, this is the design from the beginning. One man, one woman, together, one flesh for a lifetime. That was the, that was the deal. So Jesus answers their inquiry with, a, with a, a question of himself. Don't you remember? This is how it started. And they said to him, well, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Well, Ask yourself this question. Did Moses command that? No, he, he didn't. He didn't command it. He allowed it. He gave it as a concession, right? So Genesis gives the intent of God's law. In, in Deuteronomy, you're going to find some concessions where God concedes on these things because of the hardness of hearts, what Jesus is going to say in just a moment. And so they say, well, then why did Moses say we could do this? Why did Moses command them to give a certificate of divorce? And that was just, uh, you know, a certificate basically allowed this woman to go out and remarry so she didn't starve and suffer because women didn't really have means to provide for themselves in this day and age. So yeah, give her a certificate. She can go out and remarry. It, it, was, it was sort of a compassion law to allow her to, to not be uh, mistreated. And Jesus says, well, this is verse 8 of, of Matthew 19. He said to them, here's why Moses did that, because of your hard hearts. Because of your hard hearts, Moses allowed you. Okay? He didn't command it. He allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Okay? It, it wasn't so. And, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. One world. Okay, well, here's, here's, here's the tension. I, I told you about the two rabbis. So they've ran with this interpretation. You got Hillel, who, who's on the liberal side. Uh, Shammai, who's basically saying, yeah, that, that indecency, if you find some indecency in her, the emphasis on the indecency is like sexual immorality, like there has to be a significant cause. If there must be divorce, then you make sure you give her a certificate so that she's not suffering, right? Uh, Halil said, hey, let's, let's focus on the any part of that indecency thing. Any. That, that, sounds, like, that sounds like a word that, that we could find some loopholes with. So this guy literally starts building out, writes it down in, in laws um, where he's talking about, hey, the any part can really, we can exploit the heck out of that. This is our kids at dinner time, right? And, and, and he says, well, you, you know, if you find any indecency in her, like, 
you find that she's not as pretty as some other woman. You can divorce her. I'm not kidding. Like, uh, if, listen to this. If she spins around in public in such a way that she shows her ankles, you can divorce her. If she had bushy eyebrows, there's like three of them about eyebrows. I was like, that's real specific, man. She had two, two different colored eyes. I'm like, bro, you should have saw that one before you married her. <laughs> Just saying. Like, the eyebrows can come later. I get that. But if she's ambidextrous, she can't pick a hand. You might think, well, that'd be a, and that should be a, that should be a pro. That's pretty cool. She can use either one. Nope, it's a negative. You can get rid of her if you want. Or get this, if she burnt your dinner. So this is this is this stuff literally made it into their legislation. Like this is his school of thought, and and so they're saying, hey, Halil, he, he, you know, this is just pick the political candidate that you want to side with, Jesus. Can we do it at any cause, or or is it really really conservative? Is it is it only for a certain cause? So that's the confrontation. That's the culture in which Jesus speaks to. And how does he respond? He goes. Hey, don't you remember from the beginning? God didn't give him Eve and then a backup if she didn't turn out good. He gave him Eve. Leave, cleave, one flesh, period. Full stop. What does that mean? It means you're one flesh now. Like, you, you can't just separate that without there being significant consequences. Right? The physical union, the, the, you know, intimacy and sex is, is, milk, is, is built by God to 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 enhance that union, but it is, it is very much a consummation of that where the two become one, but it is speaking of the holistic relationship and the human soul are joined together. They're no longer two. Jesus says they are one. Well, what does that mean? Does it means you one is the indivisible number. You can no longer divide that without getting what? A fraction. That makes sense? You can't divide that number anymore and come out with two whole people. There will be pain, there will be suffering, there will be harm that takes on. It's like an amputation. It, it sometimes is necessary, but it should always be a last resort, and it's always going to come with pain and with loss. Jesus says, no, no, the, the two became one, and that was God's design. Yeah, Moses allowed you because of your hardness of heart, but he didn't command you. You see how they twisted it? So, here's, I'll try to give you a summary of what the Bible teaches on divorce. Uh, for, for further reading, I did attach the Journey's Position paper to your app. If you don't have our app, um, just email me. I can send it to you if you want to do that digging. It's pretty long, and it's a systematic. You can dive in, and you could see the full study here. But I'm going to try to give it summary pretty quick here. Um, this is going to come from... Uh, you know, it's going to reference Deuteronomy 24. It's going to come from Matthew 19, Mark 10, which are parallel passages, 1 Corinthians 7, right? There, there's, there's a whole lot of Malachi that's going to speak into this. Malachi chapter 2 and really the whole book of Malachi has some uh, divorce themes. And so um, I'm going to try to summarize it for you here real quick, okay? So first of all, how does God feel about divorce? He hates it. Malachi 2.16 just, just comes out and says that God hates divorce, he acknowledged that there'll be violence with it. 
He covers his, his, his garment with wrong, or other translations will say, well, violence. And, and, and so you need to take heed. Don't, don't deal treacherously in this world. Don't, like, be careful, because this will bring violence upon those who enter into it. It does it it not come without pain. Those of you who have been there, you, you are yes and amening this. This is a hard, hard thing, even when it was necessary and biblically justified, which we'll get to in a moment. It doesn't mean it was easy. It came with violence to your soul, to yourself, and to the, to the, to the being that had become one flesh, right? So he hates it. He grieves it. It's never his intention. Okay, so that, that's just the short answer. But he does allow it, not command it, but he allows it under two circumstances. There's two exception clauses, if you will. The first of which is adultery. That's what Jesus is speaking of here in, in Matthew 5. He references in Matthew 19 as well. The, the Greek word for um, sexual immorality, I say anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, the Greek word there is, is pornea, which is, is a broad term. It's not just adultery, right? They're, they're, that's a separate word, morikai. He uses that word differently. But, but So when there is sexual immorality... When there is a sexual deviance, when there's a sexual act, something that, that breaks the bond, that, that happens between the one flesh, if they step outside of that and engage in sexual activity outside of that covenant marriage, then in that case, divorce is allowed, though it is not required. It is allowed, but it is not commanded. What does that mean? It means we should first, we're going to end with this, but we should first bring it under the power of the gospel and seek reconciliation and allow God to do his work of redemption and reconciling in that marriage and, and perhaps in that person's heart, not perhaps, but necessarily in that person's heart. And if there is that ability to be restored, then praise God, we want that marriage to stay intact. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's a pattern. Sometimes the harm is too deep. And in that case, divorce is allowed, though not commanded. The second would be, it's a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more complicated. I'll summarize it by saying, when an unbeliever deserts a believer, when there's abandonment. Okay, so this is fleshed out in 1 Corinthians 7. We preached through that last year sometime, uh, maybe, maybe it's a couple years ago, but, um, and I'm glad to walk through it in detail with anybody who, who, who needs that. It, it's going to be addressed in that position paper that I referenced. But, but basically, when there's an unbeliever um, who, who won't stay, um, when, and this could be uh, somebody who professes to be a believer who's under church discipline over a long period of time, who shows themselves to be an unbeliever. Like, there, this requires some pastoral um, discernment on a case-by-case -case situation, but, but there are times whenever there's an abandonment, and when that person will not stay, whether physically they have left or with just their life, they are no longer tending to the marriage, they are no longer in the marriage, there can be instances where it does make sense to permit or allow a divorce. Again, not required but allow. Okay. The general principle is where it is permitted, where the Bible gives a permission for that divorce. There is also permission for remarriage. Okay. There are times whenever a divorce is not permitted, but it still happens. Paul would say in first Corinthians seven, then you need to remain single or pursue reconciliation with that divorced spouse. Okay. So quickly, I need to follow up on a couple of those things because this is a sensitive and um, emotional issue, and I know it finds a lot of us in different places. So just really quickly, if you have divorced unbiblically, so there was not adultery and there was not abandonment, but you still entered into a divorce, if you, are, if you and your ex-spouse are still unmarried, and Paul would say you should actually stay unmarried, stay single, maybe stay separate, but stay single, or pursue reconciliation. If one or the other has already gone on and remarried, 
then there is, there is permission, there is space for you to, to go ahead and, and remarry as well. Um, again, sensitive needs to be walked through with pastoral and biblical discernment. Okay? If you're divorced unbiblically and you already are remarried, then you do not need to end that marriage. Okay? Some people ask that legitimate question. Well, I was divorced unbiblically and now I'm remarried. Does that mean it's just a perpetual adultery situation and I need to end it? No. Okay? It might have started out against God's plan and will for you, but it is, it is currently and will be considered a legitimate marriage and you need to stay in it, stay faithful, and honor Jesus from here on out. Okay? The general rule that Paul is walking through in a messy list of situations in 1 Corinthians 7 is, hey, wherever the gospel hits you and you hear the truth, Remain there if possible. Okay, Paul's saying there, there, there's, it doesn't mean, okay, because if, if, you got people, they're, they're first generation Christians, they're hearing the gospel, and, and maybe some of you, that's you. you you're, you're, you're with somebody, and you hear the gospel, and your life has changed, but theirs isn't. They're saying, well, do I need to get divorced now because we're unequally yoked? Paul says, no, no. If they're willing to stay with you, stay with, stay with them. You're going to have an incredible influence over them. God may save them. Like, stay with them by all means. Honor, the marriage is still to be honored even if there's not a shared faith. But if they won't stay with you, he says, you're not bound, you're you're free, you're not called to keep fighting that. If they, I mean, fight for the marriage, but if they won't stay with you, then you are free. Okay, so the general instruction is kind of remain where you are, where the gospel hits you. So if you're here and you're already remarried, listen, if you need to make amends, you need to, um, you know, publicly or, or, you know, with those people that you harmed, you know, make sure you acknowledge it. Hey, this was, this was not God's intent, and I want to acknowledge and repent of that. By all means, do that, but don't leave the marriage you're in to go back and try to make that one right. That's not the Lord's will. Honor it where you're at and stay where you're at and honor the Lord from here on out. There, there is absolutely, like, like, we have to be careful with this teaching. It's why it's so messy, because some people are on this side of divorce, and they're considering it. They've not done it yet. And they will hear an explanation like this and see, say, well, see, there's grace. There's grace. And, and people seem happy and people have moved on. So I, I, I know God doesn't want me to and I know God hates it, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. God doesn't want me to be miserable. Right? And so we, it, it, that's why I say it has to be pastorally, like walked through and engaged with, with discernment and honesty because we can use these things to justify what we really want if that's what we are trying to do. And that's what they were trying to do. Find a way with the loopholes to get around, to get what they want. Jesus, they want to keep talking about, hey, what's the details? How can I get out of a marriage? What's the justification? What's the lowest bar that you'll put out there? Jesus goes, I don't want to talk about the ways out. I want to talk about marriage. I want to talk about how awesome it is. I want to talk about the sanctity of it. I want to talk about the beauty of it. So if you're here just looking, okay, well, what, do, do I meet this criteria? Do I meet that? Can I twist this story into that? Can I make this sound like that? Can I make them feel like that? Can I explain it away like this? Can I justify that? You have the wrong heart, and Jesus is inviting you. No, 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 get your eyes off of that. If you're in a marriage, and you're thinking about getting out, stop thinking about getting out. Instead, start thinking about how do you bring the, the, your marriage under the gospel. That's how we're going to end this. But, but in the meantime, we, 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 have to, we have to make sure we don't err on the polarized sides of of, okay, people that are now, you know, unbiblically divorced and remarried, some churches will just allow them zero forgiveness and they just hang that over their head and they just never let them escape that. That's wrong. That's wrong. You don't get to hold something against somebody that Jesus has forgiven them for. Okay? That's wrong. But uh, on the other side of that, some churches are like, ah, it's no big deal. No, no, no big deal. 
No, no, no. We, we need to acknowledge sin where it was sin, but we need to apply grace where there, where, where there is repentance. Acknowledge sin where there was sin, but apply grace where there was repentance, okay? Again, so many nuanced situations, so many particular stories and, and marriages, it's hard to apply these basic and, and pretty clear principles to all of those things, and so I'm not going to be able to. But I am, I'm willing to have conversations with you and, and try to walk through if that raises a lot of questions for you, okay? So, so please hear my heart in that. I, but that is, that is the basics of it. He hates it. He will allow it, not command it, but allow it under those two circumstances of adultery and unbeliever abandonment or desertion. Okay? Um, so it's fairly straightforward, but it, it, it gets convoluted when we get people's motives involved, when we get people's certain stories involved. So Jesus boils it down for us, and he says, listen, Moses gave that law because of the hardness of hearts. What does it mean? Well, listen, the, the, the penalty for adultery for them was, guess what? Death. So nobody was thinking about, well, if they commit adultery, should I stay married or not? No. They're going to die? And in that, that case, death has done you part. Right? So it's a very serious uh, context with which they're talking about, and Jesus is saying, that, that's what this is like. This is, that's how this is to be honored. And, and, and God concedes a bit in this application of his intent, of that law from Genesis to Deuteronomy, he gives this allowance so that there's not this perpetual harm that keeps getting, hap- keeps getting put on these women who are, are discarded and mistreated for burning dinners and showing ankles and, and just crazy stuff. Okay, so now back to the context of our passage, Matthew 5. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna move swiftly to the end here. Back to this context, I want you to remember what he's doing with these commands. Okay, when we looked at murder, what did he do? He say, hey, that's not that big a deal. No, no, he elevated the command, right? He says, hey, you, you've minimized it to this. I'm here to tell you God actually intended for it to include all of this. Like murder, like murder, it also includes anger. What's going on? Like adultery, it also includes lust. God's not after just what we do, but what we want to do. He's coming deeper. So here in this issue of marriage, he's going to go deeper still. He wants to push us to understand the impact and the sanctity and the honor in which marriage should be held in. And so what he's going to do here is, is remind them, hey, when you handle marriage flippantly, when you just say, you know what, all you got to do, you want to get divorced, just make sure you give her a certificate. When you do that, when you minimize it and say, you know what, it's, as long as you're doing that, it's good. Jesus is saying, what you're doing is committing adultery. Okay, that's what he says. Verse uh, 32, but I say to you, back in Matthew 5, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he, he's operating off the assumption that these women who are divorced will get remarried. That, and, and there's some cultural reasons for that. Again, they just didn't have a way to, to maintain them, you know, to provide for themselves. So obviously if she doesn't get remarried, she's not committing adultery. But if she does, it is, it is causing that. Why? Because that union hasn't been broken. And it is not biblically permissed to, to break that union back apart. Again, we got an indivisible number of one. Two people became one flesh. They break it apart. They may have done it legally and you know, civically, but Jesus is saying that marriage isn't over. So if you go now and get remarried, you're committing adultery because you're breaking that union, breaking that one flesh union that, that was supposed to be reserved for that marriage that you said yes to for a lifetime. So Jesus is pushing them to say, no, no, we don't need to minimize and dilute this law. We need to hold it in as high a regard as we can. Hold it in as high a regard as we can. And 
Jesus is pushing back so that we don't have a flippant view of marriage. Because again, if, if divorcing flippantly and then remarrying causes adultery, what's the penalty for adultery? Remember John 8, woman caught in adultery? What are they going to do to her? Remember Mary? She's got a baby. She doesn't have a husband yet. What are they going to do to her? Stone, like death. Okay, so Jesus is talking about the consequences of their flippant regard for divorce, and he's saying, you think this is no big deal. I'm telling you, this is the consequences, and the consequences for adultery are really clear, so let's not handle divorce that way anymore. That's my paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. Instead, we're going to be God's people, and we're going to handle divorce differently. And we're going to take it out of our vocabulary. We're not going to have an exit plan. We're not going to enter in with prenuptials. We're not going to have a way out. But does he just want us to suffer? No. I've heard that. I mean, God doesn't want us to be miserable, Jordan. I know he doesn't want us to divorce, but he doesn't want us to be miserable. You can't be honored by two people being miserable and hating for each other. And listen, I, I'm, not trying to be, I'm not trying to be lighthearted with that. It is really hard to overstate the, the, the amount and the acuteness of unhappiness that can come in an unhappy marriage. It's really hard to overstate that. But an unhappy marriage can be miserable and painful. What God meant for such good and fulfillment for us, when, it, when it's instead like defined by bitterness and resentment and pain, that's a perpetual tragedy for the people living in it. So he's not telling you to just suck it up and endure it. And like that's not the, the whole of his teaching there. He's, he's taking us to this place where we can get the real good out of this covenant. He's taking us to this place where we take the exit plan out of our, out of, of our vocabulary so that we are forced to lean in. The exit's walled off. There's no retreat strategy. And now when we're in that kind of covenant, now we get the real benefit of marriage because now we're forced to step toward one another. We're forced to stay. We're forced to run to the gospel, to run to Jesus, to allow our marriage to be affected. See, the Pharisees, again, they were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce. Jesus is preoccupied with the institution of marriage. They were preoccupied with, hey, can we get divorced? What does it mean? What, what? No, no, Jesus is saying, no, no, let's talk about marriage. If you understand marriage, you won't be asking these questions. If you see the beauty and the wonder of marriage, you won't be asking these questions. The Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce, they called it a command. He said, yeah, well, this is what Moses told us to do. We want to get divorced, just make sure we give her a certificate. Jesus said, no, no, that's a concession that was allowed because of your hard hearts. But just here's the deal. Here's back to the context. Jesus doesn't intend to tolerate hard hearts, does he? You remember what we've been talking about? What's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What's he talking about? The law is no longer going to be external. It's going to be applied internally. He's going to deal with the hard hearts. That's why Jesus is saying that marriage is going to be different among my people. Moses gave you this, this concession because of your hard hearts. Jesus said, hey, I'm here to deal with your heart. Give me your heart. It won't be hard anymore. We'll fix this deal from the inside out. We're going to see marriages put back together instead of finding a way out. We're going to see people's lives redeemed. We're going to see family curses turned around. We're going to see children grow up in homes that saw the redemptive power of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That's what we're going to do from here on out. Jesus is not saying, hey, let me just tighten down the screws and make sure all my people are miserable, but as long as they're married, we'll be good. No. Say, give me your brokenness. You think he asked for your sin privately, but not your broken marriage? 
You think your busted marriage doesn't apply to him on the cross? Good grief. Why are we so inclined to keep that in the dark? Why are we so inclined to suffer alone? Why do I hear so often about couples suffering for years? They've been in this building nodding along. Meanwhile, they haven't had sex in two years. What in the world? No, like we, we, we don't do that. We don't accept the status quo. We don't just suffer. We bring it to Jesus. That's the invitation. That's what he's calling us to. Jesus said, I've come to deal with your hard hearts. Give them to me. I'll replace them. Look, I've told you this several times. We're going to read the explicit passages. I've told you that the Sermon on the Mount is sandwiched in between these declarations of the kingdom coming. I want you to hear, uh, just stay where you are, but you can look over uh, to the left, Matthew chapter 4. Right before the sermon starts, here's what is declared about Jesus. He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And listen to this, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And what did that do? His fame spread throughout all Syria. <laughs> and they brought him all the sick. And those afflicted with various diseases and pains. And, and those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed them from Galilee. From the Decalopolis and, and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. What's he talking about? He's saying the, the kingdom is here. And the king is healing people. The king is setting people free. We just sing about it. Chain breaker. Life changer. Like he's a way maker. He's going to do this sort of work. And when it, when it happens, guess what? The kingdom grows. People see sick people getting healed. Guess what? They, they know some more sick people. Hey, you got to come meet Jesus. Praise God. One of the things he's done here at the journey is, is just made us a refuge for broken people. We haven't advertised it, but like people just know, hey, you're, you're, you've had an affair. Your life's messed up. You can go to the journey. They'll, take, they'll, they'll love you there. Praise God, we will. You know who that sounds a lot like? Jesus. Come on, now this should be who we are. Broken people come and get healed. That's the gospel. That's what's happening. The Sermon on the Mount is, is declaring the law. This is what it looks like. Right at the end of it, Matthew 8, 16 and 17, same kind of thing. Jesus delivers all of this, this law. This is how it's going to be, but it's sandwiched back in him healing many people. He heals Jesus, uh, Peter's mother-in-law in verse 16 of chapter 8. It says that that evening they brought to him many who were depressed by demons, and he cast out their spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Why? This was to fill, fulfill what was broken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and borne our diseases. Yeah, he's talking about physical ailments, but good grief. You think he's scared of your busted marriage? You say, well, I mean, Jordan, you don't know. You don't know how lazy he is. You know how cold and shut off he is. You don't know how naggy she is. You know how harsh she cuts me. Like, yeah, I don't, but guess what? Jesus does, and he still says, come to me. Don't, don't be so pretentious to think that your problems and your marriage are above the cross of Jesus Christ. Goodness. We, instead, we, we hear this teaching about divorce. We hear this teaching about marriage. And, and what we should be compelled to do is to run with our broken marriages into the arms of the broken Savior who died for us so that we could be healed. So we don't loosen the commands to find a way out. We, we bring that broken mess to him. He is the healer. He is the one. 
We've seen it. I, like, we have stories. Like, I could think of three stories right here in this room of marriages that have been put back together. Praise God. And you know what? There's some of the ones that have told other people, you can come here. Why? Because they've met the gospel power of Jesus. And it's present in this place. We want to continue to do that. You hear how they, the, the kingdom grows. People that have diseases that can't be cured by doctors, they get cured by Jesus. Guess what? Word gets around. People that have marriages that are so cold and shut off and, and they get healed and redeemed and they're in love again and they're, they're living life, like that word gets around. So this is our response. This is what we do. We don't loosen the commands to find a way out. We run to the command giver. We run to the one who fulfilled the law for us and we bring our brokenness unto him. So here's the, here's the deal. Jesus, in this passage, is invoking the kingdom and its authority over your marriage. Okay, that's what he's doing in Sermon on the Mount. A whole list of things. He's getting right up in your business. One of them's your marriage. Saying it's mine. I rule over all. I'm, I'm invoking the kingdom authority over your marriage, Jesus says. So here's a question for us. Here's how we close. I want you to honestly think through these questions. This is where you take notes. Have you surrendered your marriage to this claim of Jesus' authority? Maybe your marriage is good. Same question. Have you surrendered it to Jesus' authority? Have you allow, are you allowing his word to define the terms? How you treat one another, whether you're in, whether you're out. Have you allowed his word to claim its authority over your marriage? Maybe you're struggling and you've thought about getting out. Have you surrendered that to Jesus' authority? Or are you still wanting to maintain your interpretation of it, right, so that you can get whatever you want out or hold, hold it? Like, you need to ask that question. Have you surrendered your view of marriage and your marriage and specifically over to the authority of King Jesus? And then secondly, have you invoked the kingdom's power over your broken marriage? Because here's what happens when it gets hard. You get in your own head, you start believing your own narrative, and you build a narrative against that person. You start justifying ways out. You start justifying why you, should, why you shouldn't have to suffer this way. And when you do that, the more you do that, the further and further you get away from the Lord because you don't want to hear that. All right, so let me ask you this. Are, are, are you invoking the kingdom's power over your broken marriage? You say, Jordan, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you a few questions. Are you praying for it? Like, honestly, not just praying for them. <laughs> I know some of y'all have prayed for your spouse to stop being blank, right? No, are you praying for your marriage? Are you laying yourself bare before the Lord? Your marriage before the Lord? Are you, are you fighting on your knees with your hands held out? Are you, are you hitting the battle that way? Are you allowing God to, to work? Are you invoking his power over your marriage? Or are you just content and you're, you're trying to bide your time till people won't think less of you because you tried for years? Well, we gave it a good go. Now, are you praying for your marriage? Secondly, are you searching the Bible for guidance and strength to stay? Or are you searching the culture for permission and company when you leave? May I say that again? Are you searching the Bible for guidance and for strength to stay? Or are you looking at the culture and looking for permission and company when you go? That's real, isn't it? Thirdly, are you living in the light of community? What do I mean by that? Does anybody else know? 
that you're suffering, you're struggling. Gosh, don't be a hero. Don't be prideful. Think of what's at stake. A broken home, shared visits with kids and grandkids. Just to name a little bit. And, 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 and yet you think you need to suffer alone? Don't you dare tell anybody? I don't trust anybody. I don't want anybody. No, no, no. Get that mess in the light. Bring it to the light. Bring it to your community. Bring it to the right people, right? Don't put it on Facebook. That's nonsense. Bring it to your community group. Bring it to us as pastors, elders. Like, this is where we say, hey, let us know when you smell smoke, we'll have a lot more chance of putting out the fire. If you wait till the, th- the, the, the marriage is engulfed in flames, there's not a lot we can do. We'll still show up. We'll still love you. But goodness, call us when you smell smoke, please. You're not being intimate anymore. You're, you're, there's resentment there. That's when you need to reach out for help. And then, have you sought and submitted to biblical counseling? That's an important distinction. Some counselors will tell you, yeah, give it up, right? You submitted to biblical, so that could be pastoral. You could start with us. We might refer you to professionals, but are, have, you, have you done everything to try? Don't, don't devise a pathway out if you haven't actually tried. Some of y'all just don't want to try. You want out. That's what's going on with these, these Pharisees, these priests that have written all these laws. You know what? They just wanted out. They had already attached themselves to another woman. You realize that, right? All of those laws about them showing their ankles and burning their dinner, that didn't start first. Nobody had a burnt dinner and thought, you know what, I want to quit. No, they found some other woman that they liked and they they thought they should be with. They thought they'd be better off with. And they go, man, she burns my freaking dinner. She doesn't even care about me. Showing her ankles to everybody. If only it were ankles anymore, right? Got a whole lot more we're showing. You know what I'm saying? We get latched on to this thing that we think would be better. The grass is always greener on the other side. Nonsense. The truth, the grass is greener where, where you water it. Don't believe that lie. If that's you, you got to break that right now. Surrender that mess. Bring your broken marriage to the Lord. The whole point of this gospel of the kingdom is there's good news here. There's a chain-breaking king. There's a salvation-giving Jesus. And he says, come to me. You're tired. You're weary. You're broken. You're not sure you're going to make it. Okay. There's room at the foot of the cross. Come. Let's pray. God, help us. We always need it, but help us to have the, the humility to lay down our pride and come and get help, to let your gospel wash over our marriages, to be a people who are defined by that truth. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.